This program is funded through a more perfect union initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Welcome to part two of the American Landscape with Dr. Adam Sowards. Moving on to place one, part two, and we'll talk about Yellowstone. I have to go back in time just a little bit here. Earlier in the 20th century, uh, the federal government and ranchers and others uh, agreed that predators should be removed. And so they killed off all the wolves in Yellowstone by the 1920s. And one of the results was that was a, a eruption of elk and the picture, the black and white picture is kind of hard to see here on the, on the PowerPoint is of an overgrazed range. And in the Northern part of Yellowstone, this became a huge problem as the elk population grew bigger than the, the rangeland could support. And Yellowstone, working with local people and local governments, tried to reduce the number of those elk. In the winter of 1961 and 1962, the Park Service itself killed more than 4,000 elk in Yellowstone Park. This was hugely unpopular um, across the nation, but especially in local states like Montana and Wyoming. And so to solve this public relations disaster, the Secretary of the Interior, who is in charge of the Park Service ultimately, uh, does what a government agency, oh, a government bureaucrat always does, and he creates a commission. The committee was headed by a man named Starker Leopold, and he and a group of other scientists studied this and came up with a report. We always call it the, the Leopold Report. It was issued in 1963. And rather than just looking at uh, the, the elk question in Yellowstone, the Leopold Report looks more broadly and says that national parks should, uh, should have a new mission, in effect, to recreate their, their language as vignettes of primitive America. Uh, they argue that the parks should represent the same biotic associations that had been present at the time the first white people showed up into these places. This is an arbitrary date, of course, and there's some problematic ways of thinking about nature in these, these ways. But the Leopold Report really lays down the line and says, we need to reintroduce predators they didn't think they could do wolves initially. They just thought that was a sort of a political non-starter. But there was a need to do that and to, re to favor native species and reintroduce them if possible. So the direction of the Park Service was to protect these lands as, and these biotic associations as they had existed at the time of first contact with white people. And if, you, if those couldn't be preserved, they were to be reintroduced. So it's an attempt to be a more ecologically minded agency and a little bit less of a zoo, which is what some of the national parks sort of ended up being like museums and zoos if they sort of, uh, if, they promote, if they promoted tourism a bit too much. But it also, in trying to be more ecological, was giving the Park Service the green light to more intensively manage things. In this context, predators ultimately were reintroduced. You see a wolf there is one of the first wolves that was brought back to Yellowstone in 1995. One of the other things that the Leopold Report specifically 
told us that we needed to do um, in managing the national parks was to reintroduce fire where it had been a natural part of the landscape. Um, and so the Park Service takes the lead in the federal government applying fire to new places, um, testing that out, experimenting with that. Um, and if not applying it themselves, allowing certain fires to burn. For many decades at this point, federal agencies had all been um, trying to stamp out fires as quickly as they could when they were discovered. And now under certain circumstances, um, it was going to be the, the role of the agencies to allow fires to burn and become quote unquote more natural. This sort of plays out in a disastrous way in 1988 with the Yellowstone fires. Um, that's what the picture there on the PowerPoint slide is depicting. Um, and as structures are threatened and as thousands and thousands of acres are being burned in national parks. Um, but the Leopold report more broadly uh, inspires not just the, the National Park Service, but inspires federal land agencies of all around. It's really part of the zeitgeist that comes out of the 1960s with the Wilderness Act and different ecological values framing how agencies are going to do their job. And so it really, there's an effort to, this is sort of a strange concept, but an effort to be more natural and to allow more ecological processes to, uh, to be allowed to proceed within these landscapes that are protected in these, these big federal agencies. So let's go to place number two, part two. And this is New Orleans again. In the context here, I just want to emphasize is how bound up the American landscape and the American nation is with petrochemicals. And there's a particular spot called Cancer Alley between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, where there's more than 150 petrochemical plants and where cancer rates are about 50% higher than they normally would be. Um, if you know anything about American history, you're probably not surprised to recognize that Cancer Alley is, um, is inhabited largely by African Americans too. So people of color here are in a very polluted landscape and a very unhealthy landscape, and that's been the case for quite some time. Um, there's organizing uh, by grassroots organizations in Cancer Alley. And this is, I think, also an element of the American landscape that's really important to look at, um, is the, the, the grassroots organizing to oppose pollution, health risks, public health risks, um, led often, if not mostly, by women in their communities to, to fight against this sort of pollution and, and health, health risks. So Cancer Alley is one key part of Southern Louisiana. Another one, of course, is flooding because this is uh, this is because it's southern Louisiana and it's really, really low. And Katrina in 2005, Hurricane Katrina, of course, is a disaster with nearly 2,000 who die and billions of property damage. This is a governing failure and an engineering failure. If you if you remember back when I was on New Orleans Part One, I said technology and luck is is what the city depends on and both of those things can fail and they both failed for sure in 2005 and the rebuilding has been a difficult process ever since. And the last part of New Orleans is really outside of New Orleans and it's that that black and red figure which is the picture of, of, of southern Louisiana and the red 
is land that has been lost um, and, or is projected to be lost. And this is for a couple of reasons. One, those sediments that used to come down the Mississippi River and then when it would overtop its banks, that helped build land. With that not happening with the levees now, that replenishment doesn't happen. And the other half of that is rising sea level as well as part of climate change as, as we're moving into the 21st, well into the 21st century at this point. So Louisiana or New Orleans is, um, is, is a very industrialized place that, that is dealing with some of the worst consequences of the petrochemical dependent nature of society and economy that we have developed by this point in our history. So the lecture title was an introduction to the American landscape through four laws, two places, and two people. And the last people, the last person is us. And I think that it's important for us to recognize that at this point in 2022, we have a place, we as citizens have a place to sit around a table like that one depicted or to show up at a public hearing like that or to go out with family and friends across generations and look at the landscape like the other photo on the slide. And in these contexts, in boardrooms, in public hearings, among friends, we can develop and share what we want, the sense of values that we might have, and use our, our power as citizens to contact our elected officials, to um, insist on our values being represented in Congress and on the land. When we look back at this long history that I've done in a very short amount of time, we see that over time, there are more opportunities for that to happen. Um, it is not a perfect system. It's not today, it never has been, um, but it is the system that we have and our participation is absolutely central to making sure that the landscape that we share as Americans, um, we get to have an input on what that looks like and who gets to participate in it. And with that, I'll stop and see if there are any questions that I can answer for you. Yeah, thank you so much for you know such an abbreviated history. I know talking about the entire US as a country, let alone such a detail heavy topic in such a short amount of time is a very hard task. So I think you did that extremely well. The first question that I have for you is, when you're talking about Roosevelt, you mentioned the comment, making the desert bloom like a rose, and how the forests were viewed as crops, essentially. Um, with those kind of ideals and notions floating around at that time, did that impact how other landscapes were viewed in the public eye, whether you know, either the American citizenry or the federal government and thinking about places that are, you know, more arid like deserts or, you know, even though Alaska wasn't part of the country yet, you know, those you know, colder climates, stuff like that, that weren't that typical lush, more East Coast style environment, so to speak. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that it takes a while for Americans to break out of their habits of imagining a 160 acre homestead that could support a family. And so one of the ways they do break out of that is by, by the failure of that vision, especially when they hit the West. And when they hit the desert part of the West or the mountainous part of the West, or eventually 
um, the cold part of the West in Alaska, um, those 160 acres can't be transformed really quickly and easily into um, a farm that can uh, support a family. At the same time that that realization is slowly coming to bear, um, we're becoming an industrial nation where we don't all need 160 acre farms to raise our cattle and pigs and crops. Um, and so that becomes maybe less and less important. Um, but as that happens, I think we have, we rely on those greater technological um, interventions in the landscape, whether it's dams or eventually long range transmission wires to get power to our homes or water from the mountains where, the, where it's wet to the cities like Los Angeles where it's not so wet. Um, and that um, sort of changes the nature and the scale, I think, of the landscape changes that are happening. And you mentioned the Leopold Act and how one of the main focuses of that was, you know, let's restore these areas to a time, you know, pre-contact with, you know, white people. And to me, and I know it's very easy for me to sit here in 2022 and have this perspective. Um, was there any explicit reason on why the Park Service didn't look to, you know, the Native nations, you know, with the forest management, such as the fires? You know, because I know, especially in the last two years, there's been a lot of talk publicly about, you know, let's make that transition back to these Indigenous management practices, especially after all the fires that went up and down um, the West Coast reaching Portland. Yeah, so I suspect that you could find pockets where some listening happened, but I think overall in 1962 and 63, when the Leopold Committee was meeting, they just, they weren't thinking about this. They weren't listening to indigenous people. Indigenous people were not in um, positions of power in the Park Service or the Forest Service at this time. Um, and I think, I mean, part of it is just not listening and not mm -hmm. recognizing um, the longstanding history of people on these places. So it's really a naive view that the scientists have it sort of boils down to, we'll put a, you know, a figurative fence around this landscape and exclude everything and it'll go back to the way it used to be. And that's not, of course, how it used to look and how it used to work and it wasn't going to work that way. Um, and with the diversification of the agencies themselves, with the diversification, that it also includes diversification of, uh, of the knowledge that goes into the, the science involved and the management involved. Soon more and more questions get asked and more and more answers become more sophisticated that do incorporate, I mean, this takes a long time. Um, well, I think we're still barely scratching the surface here, but uh, there's an, an attempt to gradually include uh, what's sometimes called traditional ecological knowledge into these management schemes. Um, but we're, I think, just getting going uh, to see where that's, where uh, to see where we'll be in 50 years is, is anyone's guess. But I think it's a, a quite different looking ahead than if we look back 50 years. And in your opinion, since the U.S. does have such a diverse landscape, you know, not just with the continental U.S., but including all of our territories, you go from the tropical islands in the Pacific, you know, to the cold tundras of Alaska, to the lush forests scattered throughout. In your opinion, in your experience, 
have all of those landscapes been used as you know symbols of unity you know to bring such a large geographic country together you know and create that sense of a union or you know has that aspect not really been you know utilized in terms of you know a national rallying cry so to speak yeah that's a great question and um, I don't think I mentioned it, although I should have. Um, the preservation of Yellowstone National Park or Grand Canyon National Park was very much, uh, that, that American landscape was very much uh, a form of American identity. Um, in the 19th century, the United States was fairly insecure as a nation. Um, we don't have big old cathedrals here the way they do in Europe. And so what was going to be our, uh, our great unifying identity and the landscape was one of them look at these amazing mountains we have look at the geysers in yellowstone look at this huge canyon that there is in the middle of the arizona desert um i don't know that all americans i don't know if all americans see that as part of their birthright i think some very much do um i think it was ed abbey who's an important kind of iconoclastic writer in the 1960s he said, you know, I don't, I may never get to Alaska, but I'm glad it's there and we should protect it. A lot of it as wilderness. Um, I don't have to be there to identify with that place. And I think that that is common across a lot of Americans, not all. The other thing is though, I think that many people get very attached to their local landscape and that may be enough to know your own place, the place that matters most to you and the ins and outs of it, and to recognize that it's part of a larger nation um, that we do share with 330, 340 million other people, something like that, um, can be a pretty powerful thing that, that we can be connected to that local landscape, part of a larger national landscape, and then part of a, a globe, because we are all knit together um, through a shared atmosphere, for example. Then the last question I have for you today is, this program has been funded in part by a more perfect union initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And that initiative really focuses on celebrating America with the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, that sense of creating a more perfect union and what steps can we do as citizens and as Americans, you know, regardless of race, gender, creed, all of that to create a more perfect union. Do you see any ways on how the American landscape can be used to help push that needle closer towards that line of creating a more perfect union? Yeah, um, another good question. It taps into my idealism, um, which I am sometimes embarrassed to have because I think we're supposed to be all cynical um, in 2022. but. Um, I, I believe pretty strongly in democracy. And um, my last book, which is on the public lands, um, uses a metaphor of the table, which is why I've got it here on this final slide too. And I think that the land themselves that we do share in common can be the table around which can be one of the things that we can all gather around together. And I talk a lot about the table throughout the book and the way I think it is useful is early on, if we're using this metaphorically, not that many people got to sit at the table, 
And then more and more people got together at the table. And as more and more people are there, if they're able to share that space and to and they have to share it, they can't be dominated by one person. If it is a round table, like is in the in the picture on the on the final slide, it shows that we can all see it. We can see it from our own perspective because we're going to be sitting in a different spot at that table and we bring our own unique values to those places. But one of the problems we have is if the table becomes long and skinny rather than round, because if it's long and skinny, then we can't see the people at the other end. We won't be able to recognize what, what their values are and what they're trying to say. So I do believe that one of the places that we can as Americans gather together uh, is around the land as the table that that unites us all. Um, that doesn't mean we all share the same thing. It really doesn't. That's just not the nature of democracy. But if we can share space and listen and uh, offer our own authentic perspectives and values, um, and if we can hear each other, we can make incremental improvements. Um, and sometimes incremental improvements is all we're after. All all we can expect. Um, even though many of us want more now. <laughs> but I think that the, I think there's a path. <laughs>